This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone and welcome Christine to another edition in the new year of Wireless Books brought to you from the Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, Dunedin's oldest institution and we are a lending library and we are broadcasting from the lovely studios that are Otago Access Radio or as I like to call it now, Otago Access, Access Media. A rose is a rose, Christine. And speaking of roses, you look blooming. You must be enjoying your extra long summer holiday that was written up in your contract all those years ago. <laughs> okay, Ben. I don't know why I detect a bit of a dig in there. Um, I, if I'm rosy cheeked, it's probably because I'm of a certain age and I'm probably having a hot flush. <laughs> I'll keep your Miriam Margoyle moment to yourself, please. Um, well, thank you for the comparison. I, I don't know if I want to take it, but thank you. Now, books, books, books. Yes, we're just we're just taunting the listeners because I'm going to tell you about the new books that um, we sent people off with and that they can't get until we reopen on Monday the 31st of January. 2022. I still haven't got used to saying that. It's sort of got a nice ring, but then... It does, it does, it but does. But then 2020 had a lovely ring on it, and look how that turned mm. out. <laughs> so let's, mm. let's just not comment about how great or bad the year's going to be. Now, I have a Swedish writer who has written quite a lot. We actually have one of his books already in the library. This is called The Root of Evil by Hankin Nessa. And it's... It's a police procedural. Um, the lead detective is a divorced man who is starting a new relationship. And he's heading off to a holiday with his new love. And just as he's leaving the, his building, um, the postman comes in and says, oh, I've got a whole stack of, of mail for you. Do you want me to, to shove it in your mailbox? And he says, no, oh, no, give it to me. And so he takes these letters and he puts them in his pocket and goes catches the ferry to to another island where his his girlfriend is and the next morning he finds he finds the letters and he starts to open them and the third one he opens says i am going to kill so and so can you catch me oh. and it's like oh <laughs> to start with he he thinks how does this person even know who i am that i'm a policeman and my address and is this some sort of elaborate hoax? Is this real? And so he even debates with his girlfriend, you know, should I, do, should I even do anything about this? And I think in the end he sort of thinks, well, I probably should take this seriously, even though it might not be something that needs to be taken seriously. And, of course, it turns out it is. And then he's... So by the time they track down the person named in the letter, um, they are already dead. And then he receives a second letter... And then he received a third letter, and so the police are all all on high alert by this stage. And it's you know, how do they track this this anonymous person who is killing people seemingly at random, or is it at random? Oh, I was about to say, or is it? Oh, that sounds wonderful, Christine. Yes. Um, 
yeah, he's um, he's like I say, he's written quite a lot, but we've only actually got one of his books in um, in the in the library. But he, he has he has great ways with um, titles. Um, like one of his previous books is called The Strangler's Honeymoon. Oh, <laughs> I want to read that book. Yeah. Now, Wonderful. The next police book we have is by Michael Colin, 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 oh, Connolly. Connolly, thank you. Oh. He's a jolly good writer too. Easy to read. You know, it's just like when you you just feel a bit tired or, or and you just want to relax. And so putting something on, I don't know, your favourite media, you know, to either listen to or to watch, you just want something that you know you're really going to enjoy, but you don't really have to analyse it. And that's Michael Connolly for me. Mm. A safe pair of hands. Oh, well, it, he is a safe, a safe pair of hands. Mm. And... Of course, this is a Harry Bosch um, thriller, but he's because Harry Bosch is, is is not young anymore. He's brought in a new detective, Renee Ballard. Yes, so it starts off with Renee, and she's on duty, night duty on New Year's Eve, and it's it's base. It's very contemporaneous. Um, it talks about um, COVID, um, the unease after the um, George Floyd killings and mm. the riots, mm, mm. and she's she really is fed up to the back teeth and is c- contemplating um, quitting. But there's there's a duo of serial rapists who are breaking into women's homes and subjecting them to um, hour-long assaults and um, then taking a trophy of their hair. And they're called um, the Midnight Men and they strike on holidays. And so... As this is New Year's Eve, she's anticipating that they're going to strike again. So she's she's sort of on tender hooks. And now I didn't know this, but in LA, apparently on New Year's Eve, everybody takes their guns out and shoots it up into the air like some sort of wacko western or like no, 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 no. I know that that used to happen in Houston mm. because my sister Janine lived there. Yeah. Um, Absolutely shocked, um, but yeah, that's what they did. But I, I wish. Uh, let me look it up it's to see. Is that true, or is it just part of the fiction? Well, I think it probably is. I mean, I think it kind of is a Latin American tra- tradition, and there's so many um, Latin Americans who live in in Houston and in LA. And anyway, Renee oh. um, knows of this, and she knows that the best place to be when this happens, because it happens at midnight, mm. is under um, one, of, one of those bridges or um, underpasses with where all the homeless people hang out. But it's So she's in her patrol car waiting for the gunfire to stop and, and then to continue with her night. And there's um, a hard-working um, auto shop owner has been fatally hit by a stray bullet in the middle of a crowded street party. But then when she gets to this scene and they think it's not even a crime scene but she sort of works it out very quickly from the angle angle that it isn't one of these bullets that's been fired up into the air and has come down and hit this unfortunate man it's actually it's a murder and we kick off from there moida anyway i've just looked up uh, my mobile um device encyclopedia uh, this is yes i don't know how old this 
is. But as New Year's Eve approaches, the Los Angeles Police Department is launching its citywide gunfire reduction campaign. Mm. This campaign is designed to help reduce incidents of indiscriminate gunfire that have become a deadly New Year's tradition in our city. The gunfire reduction campaign aims to advise the community that ringing in the new year with gunfire will not be tolerated in the city of Los Angeles. Discharging a firearm into the air is a felony, punishable by one year in state prison. Anyone arrested for discharging a firearm will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. So there you go. But now just... Carrying on, because what comes up must go down. Mm. What goes up must come down. Researchers report that a bullet fired into the air can climb two miles into the air and remain in flight for more than a minute. Mm. Mm. As it falls, the bullet reaches a velocity of 300 to 700 feet per second. A velocity of only 200 feet per second is sufficient to penetrate the human skull. Yeah. Now, during New Year's Eve in 2005, the LAPD received 145 shots fired radio calls, which was down 61% from the previous year. <laughs> oh, dear. I shouldn't laugh, but that is shocking. But, yes, so I don't know how old this is, obviously, after um, 2005. But there is obviously pockets of the community who do enjoy celebrating. Mm. Ringing in the new year in that light, so I have to say, I'm amazed. Well, I think in your any community where there is there are a lot of guns, people tend to do that sort of thing. It's like mm. um, people t- letting off rounds of, of firearms at weddings and things like that. And we hear of these cases where they've done that at a wedding and killed mm. the groom, or yeah. that sort mm. of because that's the sort of. Um, I guess ironic sort of thing that makes yeah. the news. Well, this one is in 2020, remembering when the world was in the middle of the scourge. Um, LAPD again put out the do not fire your mm. guns into the air then as well. So bullets shot up in the air do not just disappear. So, you know, it's ongoing. So very um, interesting. I think it's the old familiarity breeding contempt with with the guns. I mean, there's just so many. There are so many guns in America, and people tend to be quite cavalier in, the, in their behaviour mm. around them. Anyway, no, that was yeah, a wee bit of a fact with fiction. Well, yeah, because that the first chapter in this is is her waiting un, in the underpass for that to happen, and I was quite fascinated reading it, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, it's just a sort of you think, why? So that's by da- uh, Michael Connolly called The Dark Hours and it will be a fabulous read as well. Mm. He's, he's a really good writer. Really good writer. He is indeed. Now I have the latest store stop from Ken Foller and it's... <coughs> Mm, I suppose it's reasonably big text, but um, let's see. It's it over, is a massive It's um, just over 800 um, pages. Oh, but you make it sound like 800 pages to me doesn't seem like it's all that big. But if you think of a ream of paper, 500, then almost double mm. that. That's a, yeah, wonderfully thick book. Yes. Now, he, in the beginning, at the start of it he says he was doing research for um, 
his um, book, The Fall of Giants, and I was shocked to realise that the First World War was a war that nobody wanted. No European leader on either side intended for it to happen. But the emperors and prime ministers, one by one, made decisions, logical, moderate decisions, each of which took us a small step closer to the most terrible conflict the world had ever known. I came to believe that it was all a tragic accident, and I wondered, could that happen again? Now, I don't think I agree with his history, because I know that on the German side, the German army was determined for First World War to happen when it did, because they thought if they waited any longer, they would lose. So they... They thought if they, they thought they were at a stage where they could still had a chance of winning, so they wanted they wanted to have an early kickoff, let's say. But anyway, on my side, people didn't really want the war. So his premise is his right, and so he's he's made this future where there's a um, there's a female president, and and so all the actors are different, but the sort of the feelings are the same, and he's. Came up, came up with these scenarios that inch us closer and closer to the Third World War. Um, a stolen US Army drone, um, a shrinking oasis in the Sahara Desert, and a secret stash of deadly chemicals. Oh, we don't need those. We've got COVID. <laughs> and it just, yeah, just... Um, just little little things and enough of them t- ticking the balance and you end up in the situation where nobody can back down. So that's called Never by Ken Follett and I don't know if I think that that'll be one of the first books I read. Oh, something to cheer year. you up? I think that's a midwinter book. Mm. <laughs> oh, you're sitting by the fire thinking of when you're all going <laughs> to go and gloom. <laughs> Oh, right. It must. How long does it take him to write these novels? Because all the research, or just even writing the words, then rewriting. Oh no, I just can't imagine well, how long it would take him. I think he speeded up a little bit because during the pandemic, during lockdowns, he was just in his in his writing room mm. writing because he, he couldn't go on book tours he couldn't do this mm. he couldn't do that and so, actually yeah. just flicking through the pages here just reading different paragraphs um, very easy to read oh yes um, extremely like there's no mm. sort of what am I trying to say? Highfalutin. Yeah, he just he knows how to it's propel a, a plot along and keep it going. It's real plain language, yeah. which is good. So, and I would say, it, just having a look at this here, it would be a really easy, entertaining read. And um, oh, you probably wouldn't see me at the library for a month by the time I got through it, <laughs> which would be pleased to be. Oh. No, no, you'd be sorely missed. We'd be sending you texts. Where are you? What are you up to? <laughs> Chapter 4, page 55. <laughs> and the last book I have here is called Still Life, and it's by Sarah Winman. And she's most well known for writing um, When God Was a Rabbit. I like it. Mm. Never heard of her. Oh, I think you might have. Oh. Anyway, um, this is set in, it's sort of 1944. It's the kind of the end part of the Second World War, and it's in Italy. And there's two um, protagonists. There's um, 
a young soldier, he's a young British soldier called Ulysses, Ulysses Temper, and and the other one is Evelyn Skinner, and she's a 60-year-old art historian who who lives who has lived in Rome, and um, she's totally enamoured of of Italy and um, and all things art in I Italy. I love it already. Yes, and she she's offering her services to um, the what are they the art. Um, rest, um, restoration. Now, restoration is the wrong word, but the people are trying to get the art that's been secreted around, get it back and mm. out of Nazi hands. And she's offering her services. And um, Ulysses, he's called Ulysses because his his father, when he was born, felt he had a, a lucky feeling, and he took he took his savings and put them all on a greyhound at a hundred to one. And it came through and won, and the and the greyhound was called Ulysses, and um, this was enough money to, for his father to set himself up in business, um, making um, globes, you know, globes of the world, atlas globes, yeah. and so and his father's died, and he's he's running the business now, and so but he's um, he's in the army, and he's he's had. N- about four different um, scrapes with death, and he now he now has that lucky feeling himself, and he thinks he's going feels certain he's going to make it through the war. And they meet by chance and form a bond and um, change each other's lives. Oh, actually, that sounds a really lovely book. Mm. Yeah, Sarah Winman, Still yeah. Life, beautiful cover as well. It is gorgeous. That yeah, parrot. Oh. Hand to mouth with a cigarette, glass to mouth with the wine. Oh yes, it's set in Italy. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> hey, um, let's have a sting. Look, get get some of your breath back. You've done very well. Okay. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin A T H E N A E U M. Now from the archives. Mm, a few last year we talked about Eleanor Roosevelt and how she was um, had a, had a reputation as a terrible cock, and um, she was um, seduced by the, um, the the concept of home economics and um, and how to make meals as cheaply as economically as possible. <laughs> and I've got a, a, a hundred years ago f- uh, f- from the 28th of April and it was from 1920 and it was about the opening of the new home economics building at the University of Otago. And I just thought I'd just go and have a bit of a Google and see where the home science sort of sits in the world. And... The idea of of making home science an academic education it was um, was hoped if they did if they made it an a, an academic discipline it would lead to the proper treatment of infants and children, better management of homes and improvements in the national nation's health. Mm. And there was um, three men who were widely involved in it: Dr. Frederick Tuby King, of course. Dr. Batchelor, who I don't really know who he was, and John Studholm, who has had um, a college named after him. He was actually a, a, a Christchurch businessman, but he he offered a deal to the University of Otago that he would fund the new school for £300 a year for 
the first four years and plus an additional £75 for a laboratory. And they ha- they held a public meeting and it was endorsed. And, but the Prime Minister of the day, now I've been very I haven't even found out who this was, he couldn't see the point of including cookery, dressmaking and such in a university course. And it's sort of the same sort of scorn that um, when you hear stories about... Um, how to be a greenkeeper becoming a university mm. course, you know, a, a golf court mm. greenkeeper and all that sort of thing. Mm. People people don't like vocational things becoming university courses. And there was also a, a, thre- a thread of women who um, weren't very keen on it. They expressed suspicions, suspicion of the use of women as objects of male scientific study and they just thought it was... And I can sort of see. I understand that. that. Yeah. yeah, back that, Yeah. Yeah, I can mm. see why. So you can see why it was sort of viewed with suspicion. Now, the article I looked up was quite hilarious because it said that the university had always been co-ed, being a co-ed university, supposedly, but they didn't really particularly want women students. Well, they liked to have one or two who, because they were fee-paying, and so that okay. was quite, quite nice. But they didn't want too many of these women, okay. and they sort of felt, well, if we sort of ch- channel them into this womanly sphere of home science, we can we can get their lovely fees without having to really put up with mm. them very much. And so they, they opened the um, School of Home Science in June 1909. Or they, actually, they founded the chair in 1909, the chair of home science, and they appointed Winifred Boy Smith, who had who had done a science degree in Cambridge and then had gone to America and and, and done further um, research in home science. And so she was quite influenced by mm. the Americans. And so in 1919, they opened to students. They opened with five students and they were allowed the, the old tin shed that used to be the School of Mines. And they... <laughs> It included a, they had space for a laboratory, but to do any of the cooking, they had to go. They had to go to the education department schools, and then they it became quickly became very popular. And then in um, 1920, they did open the proper school of science. But they always had this pressure between being an academic discipline and being very science because actually the science that they did was actually quite difficult. And so there was a lot of pressure on them to sort of water that down and actually just to produce home home ec teachers. Mm. And so so the people running the school wanted to have the highest academic standards, but there was pressure on them just to turn out these. Mm. And so anyway, I think, do you mind reading out the... Oh, I don't mind. So it's that one there and it's, it's quite... New building mm. impresses. A large number of people, chiefly, of course, women folk, took the opportunity given yesterday afternoon of looking round the new home science building at the university. The students were kept busy explaining matters to friends and others interested. The general purpose of this department of university work was well illustrated, the benefits of applied science being shown to be as real in the home as in farming or manufacturing pursuits. Little attention was bestowed on the kitchen. The visitors spent the majority portion of their time in the other rooms, studying food values as as shown by analysed results, hygiene and various processes in the light of scientific knowledge and investigation.
The danger of the common house fly, of unwashed hands and the broom was clearly illustrated by a number of exhibits showing the bacteria present, cleanliness and the vacuum cleaner showing a superiority that impressed itself strongly. Food for infants, for the growing boy and for the adult was revealed in the light of chemical fact and the superiority of numerous methods of cooking and preserving over others clearly established. An analysis of soap was also an interesting feature and an exhibit of various cleansing processes with regard to stains, etc. A large amount of literature was laid on benches for the benefit of those wishing to go further into matters. While the various exhibits contained directions that needed but to be read to make the whole comprehensible. Actually, a great time indeed. Because taking what wouldn't the mind knowing women's, some of that information. Yeah, exactly, women's so called women's work out of just oh, it's not valued into something that is actually the foundation for a healthy society. Good on you, University of Otago. And well, on that note, everyone. Happy reading. Happy reading. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.